Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade, or at least grab an extra latte. After getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. That's Chime.com goals24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. <laughs> Ship show. The Dow Jones closed out the week with three plus days in a row, culminating in today's 337 point jump uh, back above 28,000. The Dow settling at 28,015.06. Remember when I recorded the podcast on Tuesday, we had just finished three consecutive down days in a row, and that's been reversed. And the catalyst for the decline prior to my last podcast was uh, negative news on trade, in particular, uh, the the news that Donald Trump at a press conference let the cat out of the bag and said, hey, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it'd be better if we waited till after the election to have a trade deal with China. And of course, you know, the markets were expecting a trade deal any day because that's what the White House has been uh, indicating would be the case. And all of a sudden, Trump is saying, hey, I think it's better if we wait till after the election, which is a year from now. And of course, it's not a lock that Trump's going to win a second term. I mean, he's losing in the polls. Uh, so even if you believe Trump that the deal is going to be delivered after the election, he may no longer be president. Of course, he does have the lame duck session. So even if he loses the election, he could still have a few months to try to get in a trade deal. But nonetheless, that was a, a negative for the market. Well, what happened was on Monday morning, pretty much before they even rang the bell, the White House was already doing damage control and walking that back because all of a sudden I start reading these headlines. White House says trade talks going well. Trade talks going well. Now, of course, you know, that means nothing. The White House would say that even if the talks weren't going well. They would say that even if there weren't any talks that were going on. They're just trying to get the market to go up. And they know that if they simply put out a positive headline on trade, the trade talks are going well, oh, that's positive, that that's going to cause people to come in and buy the market. Because I think you have a lot of traders now that are keying in on these uh, uh, 
you know, press releases. And as soon as they see anything positive, any news that's positive on trade, they just buy, right? Doesn't matter that it's all fake news. It's everybody else is going to do the same thing. And so it's just follow the herd and traders are going to keep on doing it until it doesn't work anymore. So as long as positive trade news makes the market go up, then whatever they see the positive trade news, they're going to buy and try to ride that wave. And again, as I described on my prior podcasts, the reason that all of this news makes people want to buy stocks is because everybody believes that when we do get a deal, the stock market's going to soar. And so everybody wants to be in so they can sell that rally. Of course, I've been saying since the beginning that I think it would be a buy the rumor, sell the fact, which is why we're probably never going to have a fact to sell. And we're just going to keep having rumor after rumor until, you know, the traders get tired of, of running every time uh, the White House cries wolf on the potential trade deal. And in fact, even again this morning today, uh, before we even got the, the jobs report, which I'm going to get to momentarily, but there was more uh, news that was spun in a positive way on China, which I don't even think was positive. Basically, the news was that the Chinese are considering rolling back some of the agricultural tariffs uh, on U.S. agriculture. And this is supposedly indicative of, oh, maybe a deal is closer because the Chinese are saying they're considering rolling back some tariffs. I mean, so what? I mean, first of all, it, it, it's in their interest to roll back the tariffs. I mean, it doesn't uh, help China to tax their own people uh, for buying uh, agriculture. Again, the Chinese citizens pay the tariffs in China. The American citizens pay the tariffs in America. But everybody suffers from less free trade. You know, that's you know the, the best thing is no tariffs at all. Uh, and just everybody trades freely and finds the best deal, right? And that way you have uh, uh, gains from trade and both sides have the highest possible living standards. Of course, in America, when we trade with China, we just do it on credit because we don't make enough of the stuff that the Chinese want to buy. But I don't really want to spend a lot of time uh, getting into that point on this particular podcast. Just want to focus on this news. But if you think about what the Chinese have been saying, Right? They said that they're not going to do a phase one deal, whatever the hell that means, uh, until the U.S. drops all of the tariffs, which Trump has said he's not going to do. Well, if the Chinese want all the tariffs removed before doing phase one and Trump says, no, we have to have the tariffs on, that's our leverage. In fact, the tariffs are supposed to go up on the 15th. Then it really doesn't matter whether or not China relaxes some of their tariffs on agriculture. It's not going to impact this deal. Right? And Trump is not going to simply remove all the tariffs and go back to the status quo from before the tariffs were imposed with nothing to show from the trade war except a meaningless phase one deal that really amounts to nothing. Right, Phase one is just going to be an agreement to continue to negotiate to try to get an agreement that's never going to happen. But meanwhile, that BS news had the market already going up. This is before we got the, the non-farm payroll number. And, of course, the, the estimate for the number for uh, the November jobs, of course, this is the last uh, jobs report that we get for the decade, right? Because the next time we get one is going to be in January, and it's going to be 2020, right? So this is the last jobs report of the decade. And the consensus was for about, I think, 180,000 jobs being created. Now, Built into that consensus was GM workers returning from their strike. So that was already included in there. there the range went from about 150000 on the low end 
all the way up to 210,000 on the high end. In fact, the the estimates didn't even get reduced following the ADP report, which came out on Wednesday. This is the private sector payrolls report, right? So it doesn't include government workers. And this number came in way below estimates. I think, in fact, it was the second worst ADP report of the decade. I mean, second worst, that's pretty bad, right? We only created 67,000 jobs, way below expectations. And worse, in the goods sector, we actually lost 18,000 jobs. And this includes all the returning workers uh, from GM who were on strike. So even with that big jump, there was like 48,000 uh, guys. And that's counted as, as jobs, right? Because they weren't working and now they are. Uh, but that was counted as jobs. But even with that, the uh, private sector payroll still lost 18,000 goods producing jobs. Now, all those aren't manufacturing. Manufacturing is in there. Uh, but there's other productive sectors like mining and things like that, that that are in goods producing. But no, all the gains, the meager gains that we had were in the service providing sector. So and even with this weaker number, uh, people were not looking for a, a weaker number uh, for uh, the official numbers that we got today. But we ended up getting 266,000 jobs, well above the high end. I think the highest numbers I saw was maybe 210,000 for uh, you know the non-farm payroll. So we came in well above the high end of uh, what anybody was estimating. And of course, the media is immediately uh, pumping this thing up as this great uh, jobs report. In fact, we did have some upward revisions to uh, the prior two months. I think the total of the upward revisions was another 41,000 jobs. So 41,000 jobs added to the prior two months, plus you know we beat uh, the consensus forecast by what, 70, 76, 86,000 jobs. So it was a strong number but not nearly as strong as the media is contending. In fact, Jim Cramer of CNBC was out, and he said that this was the strongest numbers that he's seen in his lifetime. This is the greatest jobs report he's seen in his lifetime? I mean, come on. First of all, he's older than I am, so he's seen a lot of jobs reports that were better than this one. Remember, it was helped by the 48,000 returning uh, GM workers who were on strike. So if you back that out, it was maybe 225,000 or something like that uh, jobs created. I mean, yeah, above 200,000, but so what? I mean, we've had job reports uh, where the number was over 300,000. Certainly under Obama, even, we've had, we had numbers that were more than 300,000. We've had 400,000. In fact, you want to go back to Ronald Reagan, I think we had 500,000 jobs or more. And, of course, the population was much smaller back then, uh, so that represented you know even more job creation. So, I mean, these numbers, yes, it was a better report than was expected, but it's certainly not the greatest report uh, in the lifetime of, of Jim Cramer, not even close. And, you know, if we look at some of the other statistics, the unemployment rate uh, went back down from, from 3.6 to 3.5. That's the official unemployment rate. Uh, this, again, matches a 50-year low, and I keep hearing that, a 50-year low in unemployment, a 50-year low in unemployment, and we're not even close to a 50-year low. As I've explained before, we 50 years ago, the methodology for calculating unemployment was much different than what it is today. So if we had to calculate unemployment using the same 
statistical measure that they were using 50 years ago, the unemployment rate would certainly be well north of 10%. I mean, who knows how much higher it would be again when Donald Trump was on the campaign trail. He was speculating that it could be as high as 30 or 40%. Now, I think he was exaggerating things, as he often does, but he was right in concept uh, that the unemployment number was a fraud. It was a hoax. It was a con. And, you know, it's the same fraud, hoax, and con now that it was when Obama was president. So all this is fake news when they want to talk about how low the unemployment rate is when you're not counting discouraged workers who have been out of the workforce for more than a year, uh, don't have jobs because they don't think they can find one, or all the people who are working part-time who would rather be working full-time. In fact, if you look at the household survey, because remember, every time they report the jobs numbers come out, you get the establishment survey, the payroll survey, which everybody touts, and then you get the household survey. And the household survey was actually very weak. In that survey, we only created 83,000 new jobs, and 80% of those jobs were part-time jobs. So we barely created any full-time jobs. Now, it's funny, too, because they ignore the household survey completely. Not one uh, news story that I read, really, nobody mentions it. Cudlow was on TV today talking about how great the numbers are. He doesn't mention it. But I remember not too long ago, I forget how many months ago it was, we had a really weak establishment number, and but we had a strong household number. And so Cudlow comes out, and all he can talk about is the household number, the household survey, and how strong that is. So when the establishment number is low, but you have a strong household survey, well, they focus on the household survey. But if the you, the, you know, the establishment number is, is higher and the household number is low. Well, they just pretend the household number doesn't even exist, uh, but it's there. And it, you know, shows you that, Hey, that everything is not as great as these guys are pretending. And of course, you know, we don't know how many of these 266,000 jobs are in fact, part-time jobs or how many of these 266,000 jobs went to the same person. Because a lot of people who have part-time jobs, and clearly if 80% of the jobs created in a household survey are part-time, there's a lot of people getting part-time jobs. And when you get part-time jobs, sometimes you get more than one, right? Well, every time you get a part-time job, the, uh, the, the establishment survey counts it as a brand new job. So if you have three part-time jobs, Maybe you're only working five hours, 10 hours a piece, but that counts as three jobs. It could be one guy that has all three of these jobs. So again, all these numbers really can be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, but Wall Street really wanted to celebrate uh, these numbers today by focusing on the fact that we beat the expectation by as much as we did. Now, we had a big beat in uh, manufacturing. They were looking for 15,000 manufacturing jobs to be added. And again, that's knowing that the GM uh, workers are coming off strike. Uh, but despite that, uh, we got 54,000 new jobs in manufacturing. Now, first of all, taking on its own 54,000 new jobs would be a very strong month for manufacturing. In fact, Donald Trump put out a tweet early this morning about the jobs numbers. And this is his tweet. I'm just going to read it verbatim. This is a blowout. Look at these manufacturing numbers, a blowout, right? He's really excited. He's, you know, copying Maria Bartiromo. Hey, look at these manufacturing numbers. We created 54,000 new jobs, except we didn't create 54,000 new jobs because 48,000 of that 54,000, pretty much 90% of them 
were the GM workers coming off strike and going back to work, right? These are not new jobs, right? These jobs already existed. It's just that the people who had them weren't showing up to collect a paycheck. Well, they ended the strike. So we didn't really create 54,000 new jobs. And in fact, the prior month, manufacturing lost 43,000 jobs. So if you net the two months together, it's not that big a deal. And in fact, they actually revised the prior month down from minus 36,000 to minus 43,000. In fact, if you take a, a consideration of the fact that we lost 7,000 jobs that we thought we had, and then you take away the, the, the 48,000 jobs from the returning GM workers, net of that, that only leaves 2,000 jobs, 2,000 brand new net manufacturing jobs that were created based on this report. Uh, that's a blowout. I mean, especially considering how many manufacturing jobs have been lost in years past that we got a couple thousand of them back. Big deal. But Donald Trump is acting as if this is some fantastic boom that we're creating all these manufacturing jobs. And it's a result of his policies that this great economy that he has created, right, simply because of the strength of his personality, right, he's engendered uh, so much economic activity uh, just, you know, by the power of him being president because he really hasn't changed anything other than reduce taxes and increase the debt, right? He's borrowed some money and, and, and we've had some tax cuts, but Nothing really substantive has changed in the economy other than the fact that there are some people who now think it's better than it was uh, because they're Republicans and they just believe that the economy must be good because a Republican is the president, even though not much of what Trump actually believes in uh, would be supported by Republicans, if, but for the fact that it's Donald Trump who has these ideas. But it's really no big deal. And in fact, there were other uh, factors that kind of influenced or skewed this report. One is that the reporting period was five weeks and, and that's on the long side. So that that's more weeks in the month that enables jobs to be created. And also Thanksgiving happened the fall uh, on the last uh, or one of the last days of the, of, of the month. And so it was very late, you know, because uh, Thanksgiving is on the the fourth Thursday of, of a month. Uh, but this year it fell relatively late in the calendar. And so from the seasonal adjustments, that kind of skews it a little bit too. So there's a lot of reason to believe that maybe you got about 100,000 extra jobs because of you know the, the, where Thanksgiving was and how long the reporting period was. And then you throw in these um, you know striking workers who return to work. This is really no big deal of a jobs report. I mean, is it a terrible report? No, I mean, it wasn't way below estimates, but it's nothing out of the ordinary. When you back out some of these uh, factors, this is just par for the course. This is the same type of numbers that we've been getting under Trump, that we've been getting under Obama, right? We're creating a bunch of part-time jobs, service sector jobs, low-paying jobs. Where are all these jobs, right? Because they're not in manufacturing, right? So what type of jobs are they? Well, we're creating jobs in government, right? Local government workers, uh, civil service type jobs in education, teachers. We're creating jobs in healthcare, right? Nursing or people that maybe, you know, orderlies that, you know, clean up the hospitals. We're creating jobs in leisure and hospitality, you know, housekeepers, uh, bellboys, uh, you know, uh, waiters, waitresses, bartenders, we're creating some uh, other retail services, a lot of low-paying, 
uh, part-time type jobs, right? The same type of jobs that caused a lot of people to want to vote for Donald Trump because they were working two or three of those jobs and he promised uh, to make America great again and put us back to work and have a manufacturing renaissance, except we didn't have a manufacturing renaissance. We're simply simply continuing in the dark ages that we had under uh, Barack Obama with these low-paying part-time jobs. And we continue to lose higher-paying, productive jobs, full-time jobs. Uh, Participation rate held steady or actually dropped down a notch. It was supposed to be at 63.3, and it went back down to 63.2. So that's a step in the wrong direction. Also, average hourly earnings uh, were up just 0.2, although they did revise the prior month up from 0.2 to 0.4. So maybe that is a push or even a little bit better. They were looking for 0.3. And the year-over-year rise in average hourly earnings ticked up to 3.1. It was revised to 3.2 in the prior month. But, you know, these are not spectacular numbers, right? To, to describe this as the greatest number of your lifetime, I mean, I can see Donald Trump saying it's a blowout because, again, that's what Trump does, right? Trump is going to hype up anything, right? Again, this is Trump's stakes. Every time you see Donald Trump talking about how great the economy is, just imagine him selling one of his stakes, and that's what he's doing. He's selling the sizzle, literally, right, not the steak, and that's what he's doing, pretending that we have a great economy. But unfortunately, the media and certainly the financial industry, the financial media, I mean, they want to keep talking about how great this economy is because they want to pretend that the stock market is going up because we have a great economy when the stock market is only going up because of the Fed. And in fact, it's because the economy is not great that the Fed is rescuing it with great cuts and with quantitative easing and by reassuring the market that under no circumstances will they even consider raising interest rates. That's basically what's driving the market higher, which means I don't even understand really why the markets would even react to a stronger-than-expected Uh, jobs report because it's not going to influence the Fed, right? In the past, if we really got a strong jobs report, people might think, oh, maybe the Fed is going to hike rates, right? Oh, because the economy is strong. Doesn't matter. The Fed's not going to hike rates no matter what the number is. So why are the currency markets reacting? Why is the precious metals market reacting? The Fed is no more likely to raise rates after this report came out than it was before. The likelihood is zero, Now, maybe you're thinking, well, it means that they're less likely to cut interest rates. I don't really think it it moves the needle on that either. I mean, the Fed is going to cut as soon as they sense that the economy is slipping, as soon as they sense real weakness in the stock market. Now, the fact that the stock market rose, okay, yes, that probably makes the Fed less likely to cut until it starts to fall again, which it is going to do. You know, I was listening to an interview, Jeff Gunlock was given, I forget what the forum was, but he was talking about the U.S. stock market. You know, he's, you know, been bearish like I have, and, you know, he's seen the market make new highs. Uh, but, you know, all stocks aren't making new highs. You know, today, even though the major indexes were up and we, they're up three days in a row, they haven't made a new high uh, for this move. Uh, the only one that made a new high for the year today was the Russell 2000. But the Russell 2000 is still the only index 
that even though it's made a new 52-week high, it hasn't made a new all-time high. It hasn't taken out its high from the fall of 2018 before that big fourth quarter drop. And maybe it won't. I mean, I think we are topping out, even though we've made new highs. Uh, we're not blowing through those highs. And what Jeff Gunlock said is he believes that once this top is completed and we go into the next bear market, which we are going to have another bear market, but he says that the U.S. market will not recover to its current levels during the remainder of his career. Now, I don't know how long a time frame that is. I mean, Jeff Gunlock's, you know, he's not a young guy. I mean, he's 60, which is a few years older than I am. But, you know, I mean, he seems like he's in good health and good shape. I think he really enjoys what he's doing, so I doubt he's close to retirement. I mean, he could easily work into his 80s. Uh, so that's what, another 20 years from now. So he's saying that, hey, I don't think the U.S. stock market is going to get back up to where it is now for the next 20 years. And, of course, by the time it does get back up to where it is right now, in purchasing power terms, it's not going to be the same thing because there's going to be massive inflation between now and then. And in fact, one of the other things that Jeff and I agree with is he's thinking that the returns are going to be made internationally. He's saying people should be buying foreign stocks, not U.S. stocks. He believes the U.S. dollar is going to go down, just like me. I just think the U.S. dollar is going to go down a lot more than he probably thinks, or certainly more than he lets on that he thinks. And so I think the outperformance of foreign stocks relative to domestic are going to be that much greater. In fact, you know, the U.S. dollar did rise today on the uh, better than expected uh, jobs numbers. And also we had some consumer confidence numbers that came out that were also better than expected. And that probably gave a boost to the dollar index. But it was only up 026 uh, closed at 97 spot 677. And that was a pretty big weekly drop because we closed last week at 98.27. Uh, so, we, you know, closed again, 97.678. That's a nice drop on the week. And so I don't even think the dollar's rally had much to do with today's stronger than expected non-farm payroll number because the dollar had fallen quite a bit. It was on the lows. It was near multi-month lows. It was due for a little bit of a bounce. And that's really all we got. I mean, if this was really a strong economy, if people actually believe that there was this booming economy, the dollar would have been up a lot more uh, than what it was up. Same thing on gold. I mean, gold was down today. It was down about uh, 15, 16 bucks. But I mean, that's no big deal. It's not like it was down $40 or $50. Gold didn't break down. I mean, it went down, but it didn't go down a lot. I mean, if there was some surging economy and people thought the Fed was going to hike rates, you would think that might be more negative for the price of gold. But I, nobody believes that. People know that the Fed is on hold when it comes to rate hikes, that either they're going to leave rates where they are or they're going to cut them. So the number really is meaningless. In fact, the bond market uh, you know, moved down and rates moved up. But the net move, uh, you know, wasn't, again, a huge move uh, considering how excited everybody was about this jobs number and how strong everybody believes the economy is. Well, the bond market doesn't seem to think it's that strong, although rates, you know, rates did inch up a little bit. And in fact, one thing that should be making the bond market nervous is the strength in the crude oil market. Oil prices up 73 cents a barrel today. We closed above 59 at 59.16. We're right at a key level here. We're kind of at resistance if you look at a chart and you draw a line. We're at the 
the, the downtrend. Uh, so we could easily turn lower from here and sell back off uh, down to 55, 56. But if we don't do that, if we break above 60, 61 area, uh, we can have a pretty big move. I mean, certainly 70, 80 dollars uh, could be a target pretty quickly. And of course, I'm much more bullish on oil than that. Once the dollar starts to fall, I think gold, oil, you know, black gold is really going to take off. And if we get above 80, then look out. That's where you've got like another downtrend. But between here and there, I think there's a lot of room for the price of oil to run if we can just get above this resistance level. Of course, Fed's not going to do anything about it as far as uh, inflation, but that should, you know, send off some alarm bells. Uh, in the the bond market that, hey, inflation is going to be higher. It's eroding away the value of these bonds. Let's sell them. You know, and I think the dollar is going to move down because the Fed is not going to be fighting inflation. The Fed is going to be surrendering to inflation because it has no choice. Because the minute it tries to fight inflation, it loses another battle that it thinks is more important. And that is maintaining the bubble, propping up the economy, propping up the government. That's really what it cares about. It doesn't care about how much inflation uh, you know, the, the economy has to suffer as long as it can uh, keep these bubbles from popping. You know, you listen to all of these uh, big Wall Street investment houses, you know, and they want to talk about, oh, the strong economy and the strong uh, jobs numbers. Now, remember, you know, uh, a year ago, back at the end of 2018, right, all these uh, big Wall Street firms, Goldman Sachs, right, Goldman Sachs in particular, they were forecasting that the Fed was going to hike interest rates four times, four times in 2019. What did they do? They cut them three times. I mean, the exact opposite of what Goldman Sachs was forecast. I mean, not quite, right? I mean, maybe the exact opposite to the extent that there could be an exact opposite. They said four hikes. Maybe we would have got four cuts, right? But we came pretty close. We got we got three cuts, uh, and uh, you know they were looking for uh, they were looking for four hikes. But why were they looking for four hikes, right? Well. They thought that the economy was going to be strong or they or they believed the Fed. They believed what the Fed was saying. But the crazy thing is, even though Goldman Sachs expected the Fed to raise interest rates four times in 2019, they were still bullish on the U.S. stock market. They actually believed that the Fed could raise interest rates four times and the U.S. stock market could go up. There was no way that was going to happen. The only reason the market went up and that Goldman got that call right by being bullish on stocks is because they got the rate call wrong. Had the Fed raised rates the way Goldman Sachs expected them to do, the stock market would have crashed. That's what was happening at the end of last year. That's why the market was tanking, because the market was expecting all these rate hikes. The only reason it stopped tanking and started rising is because all the rate hikes that everybody like Goldman Sachs were so sure were coming were called off. Right. The Fed surprised Goldman Sachs by, you know, not raising rates, by cutting rates. But they didn't surprise me. They surprised Wall Street by doing exactly what I said they were going to do. Now, the difference is, though, I was not bullish on U.S. stocks or I preferred foreign stocks. Now, I knew that the Fed was going to come to the rescue of the stock market. I always said that the market's going to stop falling when the Fed comes to the rescue. But I thought that we would be better off being in foreign stocks when the Fed rescued domestic stocks, because I thought that when they did that, when they reversed course and started printing all this money and cutting rates and going back to QE, that the dollar would tank 
and that therefore foreign stocks would do better than domestic stocks and gold stocks would do really well because gold would take off because gold was factoring in rate hikes. And then they would not only have to factor out the hikes, but they would have to factor in the cuts. So I thought, hey, when the Fed does exactly what I think they're going to do and surprises everybody, I'll make a bunch of money because I'm positioned in foreign stocks and gold stocks. Well, everything that I thought the Fed would do, they did, but the dollar didn't tank. And because the dollar didn't tank, the U.S. stock market was able to outperform uh, the foreign markets, but not for the reasons that Goldman Sachs expected, for the opposite reasons. They got lucky, and everybody else who thought the Fed was going to raise rates but still thought the stock market could go up, they were wrong. They couldn't raise rates. They started cutting them, and because they cut rates and the dollar didn't tank, right, their investments were bailed out. The only question is, why didn't the dollar tank? What is keeping it up? I don't know, right? But to me, it looks like Wiley Coyote, you know, running off the edge of a cliff and he hasn't fallen because he hasn't looked down. Well, at some point he looks down and he realizes where he's standing and then he goes, you know, disappears into a puff of smoke. Well, that's going to happen. I mean, and the dollar has been eroding away. And the fact that, you know, we didn't get any kind of a big pop after the sell-off we've had this week uh, with this cheerleading around this jobs report, we'll see. Maybe the dollar is getting ready to break. And if it does, right, then we're going to start to see the bigger returns in foreign stocks and gold that guys like Jeff Gunlock expect and that I expect to happen only in an even even bigger way. Oh, but before I uh, forget, I wanted to mention a few... uh, Christmas ideas, presents that people can buy for themselves or obviously for loved ones, friends uh, we're coming up to Hanukkah, uh, Christmas. You know, Hanukkah this year actually falls right around Christmas or just a couple of days. So the, the holidays really overlap. And so one Christmas present idea, and I don't even think I've discussed that uh, on this podcast yet, and that is the Bubble Movie. And if you're not familiar with this movie, the original Bubble Movie was actually produced many, many years ago. In fact, I remember when uh, Jimmy Morrison, who is the producer of this, contacted me. I was you know, still uh, in Westport, Connecticut. I'd say it was probably, what, 2010 timeframe, right? He was producing this movie on the financial crisis and, and, and why we had the crisis. So you know, I, I, he interviewed me in my office there. And you know, I kind of forgot about the movie because it never came out. It didn't come out until maybe a year or so ago. Uh, and I went to the premiere of the movie. We premiered it in a theater in New York. And uh, Liz Clayman was the moderator and I was there and some of the other guys that were in the movie. And that was the first time I actually saw the movie. And it really was a fantastic movie. It was very, very well put together. I'm not really sure why it took so long to get it all done, but it actually may work out very well. You know, because there's a new movie that they're coming out with, The Bubble 2, because it was all going to be one movie originally. And so they broke it up into two movies. And I think the the second movie is going to come out next year, which I think could be extremely timely with the bursting of the bigger bubble. Right. Because uh, the bubble that popped in 2008 was simply the prelude to a much bigger bubble. Right. The real crash that I wrote about in the book that followed uh, Crash Proof. So that. That movie is going to be coming out, I think, next year. 
But the they did a great job on this movie. It is extremely entertaining to watch. I mean, I know a lot of this stuff, and I really enjoyed watching the movie. I mean, it's not just because, you know, I'm in the movie. Uh, there are a lot of other good people in the movie besides me, but it's just really well put together. There's a lot of humor in there. There's cartoons. And I think what's so good about this movie is that I think it's going to be very persuasive and educational to people who haven't already been convinced of the things that I'm saying, right? So if you have the movie, you can share it with some of your liberal friends or some people who still think that the financial crisis was created by greed and capitalism and that the Federal Reserve and the government saved us, right? This film, the bubble movie, proves that that is not the case. So you can go to the website and buy a copy of the movie. The website is letusdisagree.com. Just spell out the word letusdisagree.com and you'll see uh, the bubble movie there. And you can buy a copy for 10 bucks. They were they were 15 bucks until recently. And that wasn't even a bad price, $15, but they just dropped the price to $10 for the movie. And for $10, you can even buy a digital download version, or you can get the CD or the DVD. I think the DVDs won't, uh, well, I, they're good. They should ship this month because it says on the website coming in December and we're there. But you can get a, a Blu ray or a DVD rather for 10 bucks also. So, I mean, I would, you know, I would go for that. I mean, you could take the digital version, but I think what's good about having the actual disc is after you finish watching it yourself, then you can give it away as a Christmas present, right? I mean, you know, in fact, and if you really like it, obviously you can buy multiple copies and keep one for yourself. You can probably stuff this thing into a Christmas stocking, but you're giving the gift of knowledge, but it's a very entertaining movie. Uh, so really, I would like every single person who is uh, a regular listener to this podcast, just buy yourself at least one copy of the bubble movie and, you know, and, and share it with people, get people to watch it, get people to see it. a lot of people, you know, they're not going to read a book. They're not going to listen to my podcast, but they might watch a movie, right? You put a DVD in there, they'll watch it, right? It's entertainment. And this is going to educate them. Even if they were resisting the education, if you spoon feed it to them as entertainment, and this is a very entertaining movie. So you're, you learn while you're entertained. And I think it's going to you know, be a good you know, prelude for the bubble, the next movie that's coming out next year. So go to uh, Let Us Disagree, buy a copy, 10 bucks. It's a great deal. You're going to enjoy the movie and get some for your friends. Give some for Hanukkah or for Christmas. Uh, they're going to make great gifts, again, especially for your friends who you argue with who believe in this fairy tale, who believe in big government and the central banks, right? Think capitalism is bad. Have them watch this, this movie because this is the only way that they're going to get the truth is if it's given to them in this type of a format. So uh, the bubble movie at letusdisagree.com. That's one idea. Now, my another Christmas idea is uh, some of my dad's books. And of course, you could always get my books, but I sell uh, a couple of copies of my father's book, one being The Federal Mafia, uh, which you can buy at shiftbooks.com, $45. I autograph them. They're not autographed by my father. They're autographed by me. You know, we still have some copies left of The Federal Mafia. One day there will be no copies. I believe this will be a collector's item. It's one of only two books in history to ever be banned 
uh, and the only nonfiction book to ever be banned by the U.S. government. The other one uh, was Fanny Hill, and it was banned because it was pornographic. Uh, there was nothing pornographic about this book at all. It was banned for political reasons. And, of course, this is the only political book that the U.S. government ever banned. Uh, so you can own that book, A Piece of History. And it is a great book if you want to understand my father's perspective, his legal case for why he uh, fought the government the way he did and why he believed the government was illegally collecting income taxes. I'm not telling people to buy the federal mafia so they can follow its advice about not paying income taxes. No, it's just so you can understand why my father didn't pay them uh, and, and his arguments and, and why the government, you know, made an example of him and basically uh, turned him into a political prisoner. You can also get my father's book, The Kingdom of Malts. You know, I'm surprised that we still have some of those left. Uh, you know, I had a big stack of them that I found uh, after my father passed away or uh, in his storage room. There was a lot of The Kingdom of Malts, so I had them shipped out to Connecticut and I'd been selling them. And, you know, before I started selling these books, they were going for $200 a piece on eBay or on Amazon. They were very hard to get. And because, you know, there weren't many of them, they were expensive. That's supply and demand. Well, I found these copies, brand new copies, printed in 1999. So the books are 20 years old, but they're brand new because they're still in the original boxes uh, where the publisher, after they printed them, they put them in these boxes. And then my dad was storing them. And then what he didn't sell, I have. And when I am rid get rid of these, I don't have any left. But I... Um, you know, I'm selling them. And probably this is probably going to be the last Christmas season that I have any of these books in stock. We'll see. I mean, depending on how many buy orders I get. But to give you an idea of the impact we've had on the market. So if you go to Amazon, I just pulled it up, Kingdom of Malts. Uh, you can buy the cheapest new copy is $42.98. I sell it for $25, including my autograph. And the cheapest you can get it on Amazon new is uh, $42.98. Uh, but if you look at the range, the most expensive one is $104.22. So someone's trying to sell it for $104 and I'm selling it for $25. In fact, if you buy it in combination with the Federal Mafia, we give you a discount on the package of the two books. And you know, if you look at the used uh, copies, there's uh, there's more used books available for sale. There's 16 used ones. That's not that many. Uh, but the cheapest used one is twenty nine sixty five, right? That's that's more expensive than what we're charging for a brand new one. But it's, I get a kick out of this. I'm looking at the the most expensive one, or actually not the most expensive one. Uh, the most expensive used one is uh, ninety six dollars, right? And then there's another one for sixty nine dollars. This guy is selling one for sixty five dollars and fifty one cents. But he's, this is one of my books. Here's the ad this guy has. Signed by Peter Schiff. Right? Very good. Like new. Bought it recently, brand new, and read it once while keeping it in good condition. Looks great. Clean pages. You know, basically. So he's read the book. He bought it from me for $25. He's read it. And now he's trying to sell it for $65 on Amazon. Now, who knows? Maybe he'll sell it. In which case, he'll more than double his money, which is a great investment. You get to entertain yourself. You get to read the book. And then you sell it for twice what you paid for it, more than twice what you paid for it. Uh, so, you know, let's see. More power to him. Uh, maybe somebody who doesn't listen to my podcast will buy it because you don't have to pay this guy $65.50 to get his used book with my signature. I'll give you a brand new book with my signature for $25 while supplies last. Of course, once I'm finished, once these books are gone, they're gone. 
And then, you know, who knows what these things are going to sell for as a collector's item. So when you read it, be careful not to bend the pages. Keep it in good shape uh, because they could have some collector's value. I'm certain the federal mafia is going to have a lot of collector's value at some point because it's a very unique book in that it was banned. But I think my father is going to be appreciated uh, a lot more at some point in the future. You know, a lot of people are appreciated uh, far more after they die than while they're alive. And I think even though my father had a pretty good following in life, I think he's going to ultimately develop an even bigger following in death uh, as a lot of the things that he said comes true and people really look back uh, at the way the U.S. government treated him. Uh, and so I think that his stature uh, historically is going to improve and I think that's going to mean that his books are going to be more valuable. In fact, one book that we barely have any copies left of. In fact, we may not even have any. So, you know, try to if you try to buy it, and you can't because I think I only had 100 books and I see it. It's still up on the Shift Books website. The website is shiftbooks.com. The books are still there, uh, but it's the Tax Rebels Guide to the Constitution. My father printed these constitutions. They he color coded them. We have. There was like a hundred left. That's all I had. And, I, and I'm not even sure, again, how many are still there, but I'm selling them for $25. It's just the U.S. Constitution. If you need a copy, uh, there's an introduction by my dad. He color coded uh, the Constitution and it's only $25. It's a great little collector's item. So you can buy that one also. Again, these are all good holiday gifts. They're great to own for yourself, uh, but you can also give them to people who you are hoping to uh, convert over, win them over, uh, you know, to the good side of the economic debate. Oh, my final idea, though, for a Christmas gift, of course, is Minet jewelry. Now we're talking about a much higher price point. So obviously that special lady in your life, although there are there is some jewelry. I mean, I have the Minet cufflinks. I have uh, 24 karat gold cufflinks. There's also uh, men's bracelets and rings that you can get. There's a torque that's actually uh, quite nice. In fact, every time I see Roy Sabag, he's wearing his torque. Uh, but so there's stuff for, but there's far more stuff for women. There's a lot of stuff, and women are always wearing jewelry. They're you know adorned with jewelry. My wife wears her mini jewelry constantly. Gets nothing but compliments on it. So it's a great Christmas present, and you're given real gold. And the markups again. I think I just mentioned this uh, on the last podcast when I was talking about mini jewelry. The markups over cost are tiny compared to what you get with regular jewelry that isn't even as pretty, right? It's not even as nice. And their design premiums are enormous. So here you can buy some jewelry, pay something for the design, but also get a lot of gold for your money. So these are great Christmas gifts. I think they even have some Christmas specials now going on at minet.com. Uh, so go there and and uh, and get some uh, gold, 24 karat gold jewelry. Oh, actually too, this reminded me, I wanted to mention something now that I'm talking about Monet, because I talked about gold money on the last podcast, and I was talking about the fact that they really aren't doing the gold-backed debit cards, or they're, they're not doing them in North America, they're still doing them in Europe. But I talked about what my bank is going to be doing, and I looked at some of the comments, and I saw a couple of people kind of got the wrong idea about one thing. So I want to just uh, set that straight as to how my debit cards are going to work. And all the software is done, right? So it's just a question of my getting approved uh, to be a direct global issuer of these cards, and then it's all ready to go. So the software has already been written. It is already going to work like this. Now, I said that if somebody has dollars in their account and they're going to take a trip to Europe, they can go into their onto the website and they could change the spend on their card 
from dollars to euros, and then they can go to Europe and they'd be spending euros. Now, you don't have to do that. If you have the euros in your account, you'll save money if you do that, but you don't have to. If you have a dollar-based debit card and you go to Europe and you buy stuff, and even if you have no euros, and if all you have in your account are dollars, the transaction is still going to take place. You'll be able to buy something in Europe even though you only have dollars in your account. What happens, though, behind the scenes is we have to sell those dollars to get the euros to give to the merchant. That happens, you know, automatically. You don't see that. It's, get, it's happening behind the scenes, but there is a cost for that, right? So anybody today who has any typical debit card in the United States, you have dollars in your account or a credit card, whatever you have, you know, and you go to Europe and buy something, there's a foreign exchange rate that is you're going to pay. It, the exchange rate is going to be marked up by the banks. Well, the reason I said you would want to, if you had euros in your account, you can change the spend on your card to euros and not dollars is because then you won't have any FX charges. Because if you go to Europe and you buy something in euros and you already have the euros sitting in your account, there's no need to buy them. They're already there. And so those euros that you have will be used to cover that euro purchase. Right? So that's the beauty of the card, right? is that you can change the spend on the same card. You don't need one card for euros, one card for dollars, one card for yen. You can have one card for all the currencies. You can set it based on where you're going to be if you have a multi-currency account. Now, if you only have one currency in your account, then there's no reason to change. And of course, if you just keep gold in your account, right? and gold, no matter where you go, you're going to have to have an FX rate. right? Because if you have just gold in your Euro Pacific account and you have my debit card, right? No matter what country you go to, whether it's the US, Europe, or Japan, the merchant is not selling the products in gold. The merchant is selling in euros. The merchant is selling in yen. So if you buy something in Europe, what happens automatically is gold is sold and euros are bought. And you have to pay a cost for doing that, right? But it's the same cost that you would have to pay to sell dollars to buy uh, euros. Now you're selling gold to buy euros. So you're always going to have a cost to convert if you're traveling internationally. It's just if you keep your savings in gold rather than in a fiat currency, well, then you have uh, more protection against inflation. And, of course, the beauty of my bank is we don't make any loans. Uh, and, of course, if you have gold, then your gold isn't getting loaned out. But we don't even loan out uh, cash deposits. No matter what you deposit, we're just holding on to it. So we're not putting the deposits at risk. Of course, the deposits are at risk to inflation, right? So if you have dollars at the bank or euros at the bank, inflation could erode away their value. That's why you'd want to keep the majority of your balances in gold because then you'll have a protection from that. And also, I forgot to mention, too, the credit cards that will likely be issuing as well, the way those will work is those credit cards will be secured by gold. So if somebody, for example, has gold in their account, they could use their credit card and buy something and the gold won't be sold, right? You'll be able to uh, pay off your bill by sending more fiat currency into your bank account to pay your credit card bill. Of course, if you don't pay your credit card bill, then we end up selling some gold uh, to uh, you know pay off your balance. Uh, and if you just pay the minimum, you're going to run a balance and you're going to have interest. But the interest will be lower than would be on a standard card because on most credit cards that are not secured, the interest rate is very high because the bank takes a big risk that you're not going to pay. But if we give you a credit card 
and it's secured by your gold, then there's no risk because we've got the gold. So if I have, if you have fifty thousand dollars worth of gold, and I let you spend, I let you borrow thirty thousand dollars against fifty thousand dollars worth of gold, I can't lose. If the price of gold starts to fall, I just sell it, which is you know part of the risk that you take as the borrower when you leverage your gold. So I would not recommend people highly leveraging their gold. But if you have fifty thousand dollars worth of gold and you want to spend a couple of thousand dollars on a credit card and have a balance for a little while and then pay it off, that may make more sense than selling the gold and buying it back. So we're going to have a broad uh, base of services. But I wanted to clear up that misconception that people thought that they would have to uh, go into their account and change the currency and that if they went to Europe with just dollars that somehow the card wouldn't work. The card will work no matter what you have because whatever you have, whether it's dollars or gold, it's gonna be sold to get the currency that the merchant is invoicing you for whatever you bought. But I wanna reiterate just to make sure this is clear, this program is not fully up and running yet. I mean, we still have uh, a, we still sell gold at the bank and we still let you get a debit card that enables you to access that gold, but it's not this full automated low cost program that I want to roll out once I'm not reissuing somebody else's card, but I'm directly issuing my own and we fully integrate everything into my new software system, which is going to dramatically reduce all the behind the scenes costs and make the product really, I think, viable uh, to use gold as a medium of exchange, uh, which is something that I was hopeful that uh, gold money was going to do. Maybe they'll do that at some point in the future, uh, but they're not looking to do that now, but I am. But I also want to reiterate that we still do not take American citizens at my bank. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're an American, you're thinking, gee, I want to go open up a bank account at Euro Pacific Bank. You can't do it. Don't even try. We don't take Americans. But that is going to change. I do hope to be able to open up my bank to U.S. citizens, hopefully as early as sometime next year. I don't really know when in the year, but I am hoping to do that uh, because the, the reasons that I initially excluded Americans really no longer exist. So uh, I have made the investment in the software that would be necessary to do all the reporting uh, for domestic accounts. So that's going to happen. But don't try to clog up my uh, account opening process. If you're an American, if you try to open up an account, you're just going to waste our time. We're going to reject the account. So wait until I give you the go ahead uh, that we're accepting them. But if you are outside the United States, if you're not an American citizen uh, or you're living outside the United States, you can open up an account right now. Uh, you can get going. You can buy gold at my bank. We'll store it for you. And uh, if we get these uh, the new cards, you'll be able to get one. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, people that open up bank accounts at your Pacific bank, uh, they also can open up affiliated brokerage accounts. These are not accounts to be managed by me. If you want to have an account managed by me, you can open it up at your Pacific asset management or your Pacific capital. But if you want to self-direct your own account, if you want to do discounted online trading, we have a portal for that. And you can do that through your Euro Pacific bank account. And you open your account just by going online and following the process, filling out the paperwork uh, so we can do all the KYC and make sure you're not a, a terrorist or a drug dealer or a money launderer, right? Uh, we'll do all that. You just have to go to the website. It's europacificbank.com. Europacificbank.com is my website. Again, Americans need not apply, but not yet, right? We will be uh, uh, rolling out the welcome wagon uh, to Americans uh, sometime, hopefully next year. But until then, again, hold your horses. But if you're not an American, if you're living abroad, europacificbank.com is the website to set up your own uh, bank account.